Welcome back to Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments, your twice weekly cannonball dive bomb into the worlds of politics and dystopia and, well, uh, all things shit, uh, really, uh, but desperately, sometimes earnestly, depressively, endlessly trying to find the funny in it. And if we can't find some doom lols, some gallows humour in there, well, well, then we're really fucked. Uh, that means we've reached the end of the road, guys, uh, if that happens. That is the bell toll for the end. If you turn on this podcast, where you normally come to for a sort of, uh, uh, well, we're all fucked, but, you know, take a seat around the dumpster fire. I'll pass you the homebrew and let's try and laugh about this. If you come here for that, which is basically the show's USP, and what you get is just, you know, a jokeless me trembling in silence... Well, then you know that the game is really up. Curtains down. Uh, Joining me tonight, super psyched to have this guest on. Uh, Our paths crossed in a mutual campaign group uh, in which we chat and exchange ideas. Um, And I'm familiar with her work contributing on LBC and Byline TV, among other places. Uh, Tonight, we're going to be discussing the NHS, privatisation, funding, how bad things have gotten and where things are headed. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Julia Patterson. Woo! Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. Good evening, Doctor. How are you? I'm, oh, I was about to say I'm very well. <laughs> Second um, guessing yourself I, already. It's a confusing time, isn't it? Um, we were just having a chat before, weren't we, about how um, it's very strange at the moment. Everything's absolutely terrible. And yet it's hard to know how long this is going to go on for. And right. if we're maybe coming to a turning point. Yeah, it feels like... Yeah, as we were saying a second ago, it feels like half like we are really circling the drain, like things could get really, really bad at this point. Um, And yeah, at the same time, Labour conference, lots of exciting policies. Labour, I think it was yesterday, 17 points ahead in the polls. Mm. So we might be turning a corner, dare I say, like, is it is it should we have hope and faith at this moment? I don't know. It's hard to know how far we are out from an election, isn't it? And and what the government are going to do between now and then. Um, it's also surprising how they seem to have done absolutely everything to make things bad for voters mm. just within a matter of weeks. Yeah, it's it's like I always feel like when we're this far away from an election also that you should never sort of underestimate the damage that like the journo-political landscape could inflict upon that 17-point lead between now and then, like the the amount of nonsense and misinformation and outright lying that they can just throw at the electorate. I wouldn't be surprised if it did come down quite dramatically, but I cling on to the hope that we could just sort of, you know, edge it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because going into this winter, I can't imagine things are going to get any better for the next six months for the population. And clearly the government are going to have to do an election sometime in the next sort of just under two years. So they're going to have to pick a moment to do it, aren't they? I mean, you, I you know, yeah. They, they could always try to win the public over with a series of tax cuts. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's difficult to know who the voter base is, quite honestly, that they think that's going to appeal to. And then there was that announcement today, wasn't there, about pensions that looked like pensions were going to collapse. It's like... <laughs> Yeah. Did you see the thing? There's a there's a numbers guy uh, who who does like an analysis for Sky News. Uh, I, I think his name's Ed Conway, and uh, he said that his intel was telling him 
that we were a, a matter of hours away from huge chunks of the pension sector going under. Yeah, I saw that as well. It's terrifying. I mean, it's obviously absolutely terrifying for anyone on a pension, but also politically, surely the only people that the Tories are still appealing to are those that older crowd. And I mean, that's going to, you know, not be appealing, is it, even to their core voting demographic? Yeah, but then it, like another underestimation is sort of like never underestimate how uh, sort of... Well, you're you're a psychiatrist by trade, right? I've got to be careful if I, if I call people lunatics. Never underestimate how incompetent, let's say, uh, they can be. I mean, like T- Theresa May wheeled out that social care policy to pay for social care by uh, was it like the dementia tax? She was saying, yeah, uh, yeah. ferociously unpopular with yeah. their core demographic of voter. How they didn't see that coming and the, the subsequent U-turn that it was going to need is beyond me, but. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you're right. It's really, really unpredictable, particularly at the moment, because things seem to be happening so quickly. Mm. Um, If an election was called, who knows what kind of tactics would be at play? I mean, it was bad enough in the last general election. And um, I hate to say it, but I think the kind of the arena of how people behave on social media and the tactics being used by politicians have not improved since then, have they? So it's quite... I mean, it's it's fascinating, but in a slightly terrifying way, I think, to, to what's yeah. going to happen. I, I look over, like I look at America and how far the political discourse has sunk. And I look mm. at Donald Trump in particular. And as I was tweeting about him earlier in the week, saying basically he's backed into a corner at this stage where he's no longer this symbol of like aspirational wealth. He's not the billionaire that everybody thought he was. So he doesn't tick that box for the Republicans. Um He's not a candidate for law and order because he's a just habitual lawbreaker. I mean, how many cases has he got being thrown at him at once now? Um, So the only thing he really has left when he's backed into this corner is either just outright corruption along the lines of sort of trying to steal elections and throwing accusations of election rigging at other people, uh, or indeed reframing, rebranding himself as Jesus. Which is yeah. I mean, I was just I, I've been listening quite. I probably probably listen to the same sort of stuff actually. But I was listening to a podcast the other day about him and how um, strangely enough, the 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 things that he was talking about five or six years ago, which received a lot of um, sort of consternation and a lot of sort of poo pooing about um, we shouldn't listen to experts and we shouldn't trust the media and we shouldn't trust anybody and we should be individualistic about everything. Um, those ideas have become more powerful, haven't they? So even though you're right, he's absolutely lost his standing in terms of being a successful businessman and the American dream, for some people who are, I guess, feeling um, belittled, isolated, like they've been let down, he taps into a sort of anger, which I think resonates horribly with quite a lot of people, probably more so now than it did in 2016. Mm, Yeah, I think you're right. I I, I think the thing that he taps into... And that Johnson, probably to a lesser extent, tapped into uh, Mm. maybe around the Red Wall kind of uh, arena was this sort of post-industrial anger, this feeling of being left behind while city slickers, if you like, or, uh, you know, New Yorkers or, um, or, or, well, I guess, yeah, here it would be like the the metropolitan elite or whatever continue to benefit from things like EU migration. Over there, it's sort of rust belt, isn't it? And I think in in a similar way with Johnson and Trump, what they market, what they offer these people is a 
quote unquote, a sort of simple story of mm. like, these people are bad because they take something for, from you or took something from you and you are oppressed. You've been persecuted and don't worry, I'm here, I'm on your side and I'm looking out for you. Wink, wink, just keep voting for me. Keep mm. donating, you know. Mm. Yeah, but, it's um, scary. Yeah. It's scary. I, yeah, and it's difficult to know how that's going to play out in the UK, isn't it? Because you're right, Boris Johnson definitely tapped into something similar. But he's gone now. I think Liz Truss is is something of an enigma in terms of what she would um, bring out in voters. Yeah, I think so. Femi was on the show last week and he was saying he wasn't totally sure right now. What, like what he didn't articulate it like this because he's much more articulate than I. But uh, he it was like he didn't know what her vibe was, what her where. Whereas people who have come before her, both in the UK and over in the US, they have a sort of, you know, a character or they have charisma or they have a certain vibe to them. With her, it's sort of absent. She's like this sort of, I don't know, ghost of Thatcher. But I, I don't know. I can't articulate it. It's um, but it's impossible to to really pinpoint her down. Uh, in any real sense, because each one of her policies and each one of her like juncture points that she's been on throughout her career have always been so changeable, you know? That almost makes it more scary because there's a, definitely a sense that she's a vehicle for other people's ideas. And the fact that she's sort of unknowable, unreadable, we don't really know what to expect means that we're not going to know what the next policy is going to be. And People who are unknowable in that way, um, it's easy to sort of use them as a blank canvas and people project what they want to see upon, you know, that person. And so if she is supported by a sort of, you know, supportive media and some really strong campaign messaging, we might find that she looks like quite an attractive candidate, regardless of the fact that she herself isn't really emanating much in a way of strong ideas i don't know i mean yeah i've not really considered that it's it's an interesting uh angle that she's yeah she's effectively a sort of mannequin that you can dress as you see fit and then she becomes that that figure that symbol so uh, the thatcherites will see her as a sort of you know thatcher 2.0 the uh more centrist tories of which there are still i don't know a couple dotted around we'll see her recent announcements about maybe bringing in more immigrants to to bolster the uh the labor force to to inspire growth they will see that as her being yeah quite sort of center right being arguably depending on where she gets the immigrants from quite sort of pro-europe you know yeah i think we'll see and there was obviously a lot of discussion a few years ago in the u.s about Hillary Clinton and the likability or not of women and how different politicians, you know, female politicians have to behave. I think it'll be interesting to see how she's framed as a politician for that reason, because this conversation sort of has fallen out of the the public domain a little bit. But when Theresa May was in charge, um, she definitely wasn't full of charisma. But there was argument to say that perhaps because she was a woman we expected more warmth from her or we expected something different from her and there's not been much discussion about that with Liz Truss yet but like you say I haven't seen a great deal of charisma or warmth or anything really yeah (laughs) it's always a sort of bugbear of mine and I I always shit my pants that I'm gonna word this in the wrong way and it's gonna come out really clumsy which I'm sure it will do but I always feel like 
when we get a woman in a position of power and influence, whether it is uh, a commissioner of the Metropolitan Police or it's a Theresa May or it's a Pretty Patel, somebody, I mean, look, a lot of these seem to sit further right on the political landscape, but I'm, I'm sure it could be true on the left also. Um, it's like we sort of put this woman in a position of power and influence and then give ourselves a pat on the back for giving the job to a woman. Then we've ticked that box. But actually, the woman who has been given the job has been given that job by a bunch of men who have sought out their own attributes within her. And so then this woman who gets the job tends to be, let's say, quote unquote, like a real ball buster or, you know, she'll really bang heads together or, you know, these sort of masculine take charge, take control. She won't take any shit, all of that stuff, rather than the other attributes that we tend to celebrate within women. Uh analysis uh uh care um you know like it's it's it always seems to be we've given the role to women aren't we so great it was like well, well hang on a second have you <laughs> what problem are you solving if you've just given it to somebody who still behaves exactly like you do you know what i mean am i making sense yeah. no I, I think it's it's really interesting and i think this needs to be spoken about a lot more i often think about it in terms of the poor patrol because i've got two kids right um a lot of other children's programs there's this sense that you have a load of action heroes within a children's program there's normally four or five all of them are male apart from one which is a female and the female one wears the pink outfit right and whatever the program is Paw Patrol I guess is like the classic they've tried to introduce more female characters but the original lineup there was only one um you know, there's the kind of the one who's the digger and the and the one who's the brave one and the one who's a bit of a class clown type of a character. So the, all of the male ones have some kind of a persona and the girl just is the girl. Like, the, she's the girl one and, and her, you know, her character is being a girl. Yeah. So she have a, a defining quality beyond she wears pink and she's the girl in the pack, right? And... I think that that sometimes happens in other situations and um, and you get this strange dichotomy, don't you, where you're right. It's like a, women within politics, I think, still operating in a largely male environment and either has to behave like this sort of 80s caricature of what a woman in the workplace is or the, the absolute opposite, which is sort of has to pretend to assume all of these super feminist, feminine, not feminist, feminine traits. Mm. It's like, don't worry, guys. There's a nice, friendly lady here. You know yeah. that? Kind of, oh, it's like really or, great. Or like, <laughs> like the, was it 30 Rock or was it something else that, that there's a, a scene where uh, the lead female character like gets a job within this male-dominated team and then, yeah, sort of feels pressured to then be like oh look yes there's a chick in the team now but don't worry boys i'm st i'm still one of the lads you know it's like that yeah. kind of vibe i can come to the strip club too though because i'm just like you know um but yeah so i mean look i could i could talk about this stuff for hours but the reason i wanted to get you on uh tonight uh was to get your intel um your your experience on the nhs uh where we are with it how bad things have gotten um i guess a good point to start really like Obviously, I'm familiar with your work contributing to to the media outlets I mentioned at the beginning. Um, others may not be so familiar with you. Perhaps you could give us a little bit of background in terms of what you were doing before you were doing the campaigning and how you came 
to move more into sort of an activist sphere? Sure. So um, my background is as a doctor. So I qualified as a doctor in 2010 and uh, did lots of jobs that you do when you're a junior doctor, going around all the different specialties and getting experience in different areas. And I decided to specialise in psychiatry. Um, so I started my specialty training and um, which consists of six years of training to become a consultant psychiatrist that my postgraduate exams and was really enjoying the job um, in I was working in London it was really pressured but extremely interesting working with really diverse population and um, around sort of 2015 2016 the junior doctors were in a contract dispute with the government um mm. And it was really the first time that I think a lot of us had paid attention to the government's ability to frame issues <laughs> in a way that misrepresented them. Right. So that's it. This was in Jeremy Hunt's tenure, wasn't it? Yeah. So there's a generation of doctors of about my age, so I'm in my mid-30s, who probably weren't particularly political before that happened. And, and what did happen was Jeremy Hunt, sort of managed to impose an unfair contract on junior doctors which disproportionately impacts on lone parents who are mostly women in the medical profession and he got away with it by sort of blaming us for patient safety problems within the NHS right it, it came about because there was an absolute barrage of abuse towards junior doctors which was really unpleasant to tolerate when you were working in a service the government are doing something quite similar now to the GPs. So I have a lot of sympathy for what they're going through. But it was really awful. And and, and sorry, just to, to sort of yeah. join the dots to, to colour this in a little bit. So the challenges that you were up against in that environment were uh, off the back of like la lack of funding, uh, lack of resourcing. So obviously in 2015, 2016, we'd already had a few years of austerity. Mm. So there'd already been quite significant service cuts, um, bed cuts, and we were noticing that the service was becoming like more pressured. And doctors work really long hours, so we were already working really hard Um and you give up quite a lot as a junior doctor as well because you, you have to work really antisocial hours and you don't have a lot of choice over the hours and the shift you work and that kind of thing. So you end up doing things like working Christmas, missing your friend's wedding, you, you know, you're working all the time. And because you have to move around a lot with the job as well, it can be quite transitory. It can be quite difficult to put down routes where you're working. So it's just a tough job. Right. And you do it because you love it and people are extremely dedicated to the NHS. But doing that and then being attacked at the same time by someone who's essentially insinuating that you're lazy and you're not doing enough good enough job and because of you patients are suffering and it when, was just, sorry when you say somebody's attacking you do you mean ministerially yeah, I mean, or, or do you mean like people that you're actually treating that they've been waiting too long or so at that point um we we didn't really well i certainly didn't feel that the public were critical we we got a lot of support from the public mm. it was um, it felt like attacks specifically from politicians and some media outlets as well, of which you can probably imagine which ones. <laughs> yeah. but, but I mean, it, I suppose the reason it was significant 
for not just myself but for a lot of doctors is because doctors um prior to prior to that certainly of my like my age group I think we'd all just sort of been chugging along with our heads down working hard in quite a stretched service but didn't feel that we were up against the politicians in a sort of combative way and that situation which went on for about a year was really unpleasant and we came out the end of it with a contract being imposed on us which was bad and much more of an awareness about what's going on in the NHS generally because I think all of us sort of woke up and became quite political and quite aware of what was going on mm. uh, and the trajectory since then <laughs> has got worse and worse but basically since then so I, I was uh, working as a junior doctor when all that was going on I then had uh, my two children in quite quick succession so I had two maternity leaves kind of almost back to back and that gave me a lot of time. And I got quite involved in a few different NHS campaigns because I just was in London and kind of pushing around a pram and used to bring my baby along to like protests and all kinds of stuff. Um, <laughs> and, and like it was just a funny time in my life, I suppose, because I had a bit more um, headspace to engage in that kind of stuff because I wasn't doing my day job. Um, and doctors who had kind of come together trying to, put together sort of grassroots um, projects around the kind of junior doctor contract, started organising in different ways. And there were sort of some really powerful Facebook groups that existed where people were talking about stuff. Um, and I decided to set up a Facebook group for all doctors because up until then it had been very much like the junior doctors grouping up together or consultants grouping up together. So I set up a Facebook group which we still use, which is called the political mess. And it's it was a sort of play on the idea of um, the doctor's mess, which is like the staff room for doctors in a hospital. Okay, and it's yeah. a place goes and they talk about stuff. So anyway, this, this Facebook group is called the political mess. And um, it quickly grew to about 25,000 members. And there was a couple of very high profile legal cases going on that people kind of used this Facebook group as a way of crowdfunding and talking to one another and supporting one another through quite difficult stuff going on anyway this was all going on and it was taking up a lot of my free time and I was really really passionate about it and I started feeling so strongly about what the government were doing to the NHS and how they were treating healthcare workers and what that was doing to patients that I thought that probably what we needed was a non-profit which would be a sustainable organization which would hire people to run campaigns so that whenever the media were, you know, throwing attacks at staff or we needed to share information or whatever, mm. um, we would be able to call upon a team instead of kind of scrabbling around and trying to do media interviews on our lunch break or whatever, which is what we had been doing. So that's where the idea um, for the organisation I run, Every Doctor, kind of came from. Um, the other bit of it is that it's really difficult for doctors to speak up in the media safely because press departments of their workplaces don't like them to reveal problems that are happening right. because it, and that's really problematic because you know if there's problems that are affecting patients staff have a duty to speak up and want to speak up quite frequently and they'll often try to within you know their own workplace and it's not to say anyone's trying to do a bad job, but there's just not enough resource right now. And sometimes they want to talk about the wider system and, you know, their worries about what's going on with a lack of resource and whatever. But press departments 
really push back on staff speaking up in the media because it's it's all there have been cases where um you know actually what is a systemic problem what's going on all over the country if people speak up in one place it kind of it attracts the attention to that hospital or that workplace and it makes it look like that place is failing right and then that can attract negative attention to that workplace it's not you know so that's not good that yeah hospital. like i can i i get that that there has to be an approved channel for messaging and and so on but if it's if it's getting into the territory of life and death and patients being missed or sleeping out in corridors or uh, there isn't enough funding or resources or they're not hiring enough nurses or, or something yeah. and it's adversely like there's fatalities that are attributable to it would they then stop you from talk or would, like how would that work if you wanted to speak out about that kind of stuff well what normally happens well there's a great deal of worry about doing about speaking up about things like that and so what we do what we've done since we started every doctor is we've got an encrypted email address where we get people to send stuff in and we anonymize it and take it to the papers so that the person can't be traced yeah but we've broken quite big stories in the press um and then there have been a sort of attempted witch hunts to try and find who that person was who broke the story to us. And we've just never revealed who any of these people are. But yeah. um, that sort of thing goes on. And it's horrible, really, because How... there are occasions, like you say, where patient safety is at risk. How and fucking you... depressing is that? That like so in, in a in a country, in a society where you would hope that actually the story is there isn't enough money here. There's not enough resources. We need to up the money that we're putting in to hire in the right resources and correct facilities so that this shit never happens again. But actually, the story that <laughs> that comes out yeah. the other end for some people in Fleet Street is like, well, we better fucking hunt down whoever leaked that, you know? Well, uh, do you know, I don't know if it's people in Fleet Street. I think it's locally that, you know, people within the workplaces will be trying to work out, like, who's the person who revealed this? Um, like, isn't that even worse yeah oh it was awful during the pandemic we we got you know because people were sharing a lot of information with us um mm. and we were being sent emails that had come to staff from press departments which were really threatening you know if we find out who this person is then blah 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 you know it's awful yeah. and these were, were just you know felt the need to inform the public about what was going on quite often it was just safety stuff or you know concerns about not having enough ppe or whatever you know and that information needed to get into the public domain yeah i mean it's i suppose it's a bit like when i mean i'm going to butcher the quote now and i can't remember who i should attribute it to but uh isn't it like the uh, a riot is the language of the unheard something along those lines so it's like where diplomacy breaks down and people are no longer listened to eventually they will end up rioting um and it's it's not obviously it's not that bad but it's like you know if you if you report these things up the correct channels to procurement or to human resources or whatever uh and they just keep pushing back and saying well you know we'd love to we'd love to keep things safe for you we wish that we could hire in 10 new doctors to that ward or whatever uh, but unfortunately, no. Like, eventually, they're going to go that route, right? It's the same sort of... Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And and during the pandemic, there was... It was ludicrous, to be honest. I mean, there was... For GPs, for example. So GPs 
a lot of GPs weren't sent enough safe PPE at the beginning of the pandemic because the government hadn't planned things properly and they didn't have enough PPE. And they primarily sent it to intensive care units because, um, I mean, for safety reasons, because um, in some procedures that were going on in intensive care units, there was going to be more viral load into the air, blah, blah, blah. So that was a sort of practical consideration on their part however it meant that gps were being sent you know if you were in a really big surgery with 50 staff for example you might be sent one box of those flimsy masks at the beginning of the pandemic that was all they were given yeah and sent emails and we were sent these saying things like we're not going to give you any more ppe there's no more there's no more ppe for you can you contact your local hairdresser or school and see if anyone's got like a laser printer or sorry a 3d printer or whatever and then they'd receive another email that would say don't go to the press about any of this you can't tell anyone this is going on and you're thinking these people they're you know they're on their own um a lot of them were doing stuff like drive down to b&q and literally buy whatever they could like buying perspex walls and you know random masks that they found you know all this sort of thing and it was like then they can't talk about it but if they could talk about it someone might come up with a solution for them yeah yeah it's it like was you're not solving what? anything by by like muzzling everyone and stopping them yeah. from communicating yeah um so i suppose so you've got this one challenge on this side that is uh that messaging is is being frustrated and, and restricted from getting out then on the other side in terms of your campaigning people people like you trying to get the message out in terms of privatization and and lack of funding you've got this ongoing challenge now let's say for the last like three or four years that there's this it just feels like there's one massive news story after another like it's brexit then it's the pandemic then we got a new prime minister and the queen's died and now the economy's falling through the floor like it, it feels to me like you have the nhs privatization funding falling further and further like off of page one off to like page two down to the bottom of page three like in terms of people's um like everyday concerns where it, mm. it used to like it would have been in in the top three is that your sort of is that something that you're battling with at the moment is to try and keep this at the top of the agenda to to make people aware that things are getting worse still oh it's yeah I mean, it's a real tricky one. I was actually looking at some polling the other day, looking at people's priorities at the moment and how it changes. Like, it's always quite interesting to look at, isn't it? Mm. And you're right, the, the NHS at the moment is like number three or four, and it doesn't normally fall out of the top five. Right. But the thing really worrying at the moment for us is, I guess, as doctors, like I'm not working clinically anymore. I just work for every doctor doing campaigning, but you know, you don't lose your sense of watching an impending disaster and trying to intervene. And something that our network are really, really good at are looking at, you know, the stats of, you know, what's happening now? How pressured are things now? How bad is it going to get? We can predict it pretty well. And right at the beginning of COVID, for example, before it was in the papers, doctors in our forum were, you know, warning each other, this is going to get really bad. Have you seen this? Blah, blah, blah. Showing all this information because we know what's going to happen. So, um, it's September now, to answer your question. Right. It's going to get really, really, really bad this winter. And we're trying to warn people now about how bad it's going to get. But you're right. The news cycle is so swamped with all of the other stuff 
that it's quite difficult raising the alarm about all of this. Um, and what's really frustrating is that the media pounce on these stories in such an intense way when when the A&E, like, you know, is so backed up that you can't get in. And, you know, when, I mean, things are really bad now, but, like, it will get worse. And I know that I'll get those phone calls in December and January and February. What could have been done, you know, and what can we do? How are we going to And I'll be thinking to myself, well, I've been telling you since August and you just haven't. Yeah. You know, things could be done now to prevent things getting worse this winter, but it won't, it won't be tackled, I don't think. But then when you say things are going to, like, it's bad and it's going to get really, really, really bad, like, how specific could you be about that? Okay, so the NHS waiting lists in... Well, all across the UK, but particularly in England, are the worst they have ever been on record. And every single month now, they're breaking their own records for being the worst they've ever been. So you've got a population of people with a very high clinical need. So a lot of people need to see a specialist now and are not seeing one. That is heaping enormous pressure on GPs because people who would normally by this point have been seen by a specialist and would be managed by specialist care pathways are, are under the care of their GP still, mm. who's having to manage a caseload of really clinically complex patients. So all the GPs are under enormous strain. Um, the ambulance waiting times are really, really long. That's because of a complex situation where essentially an ambulance can't leave a hospital car park until they've dropped off their patient, but the patient can't go into A&E until there's room in A&E. And there's people stuck in A&E because there's no beds on the wards. And so there's this kind of like backlog situation going on. So right. ambulance really, really long. So you've got ambulance waiting times really, really long already. Waiting lists are really, really long. And we're missing in England almost 10% of the NHS workforce at the moment. That's really terrible as well. Um, and that's for a combination of reasons. But a lot of people have left <laughs> the NHS because it's so stressful to work in. Yeah. And what happens in the winter months is we've got covid which will probably put some pressure on the NHS. That's going to make things worse. Um, respiratory illnesses always escalate during the winter months. Mm -hmm. So that puts additional pressure on the health service. And, you know, for those months between December and February, we pretty much have a crisis every single year because the beds are being cut in the NHS to the point that we run at about 92 to 96% capacity beds-wise all year round. Right. So when you have periods of additional pressure, which just happen because that's just human nature and that's the seasonal cycle, um, every single winter we have a crisis. Um, there was one winter, I think it was 2017, where the Red Cross had to step in and called it a humanitarian crisis. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up in a situation like that this winter again. Um, it's difficult to see how we won't. Yeah, like nothing's magicking itself. There's no solutions coming down the line. So why no. would it be any different, right? Um, I suppose, like, not, not to use too crude an example, but sometimes when I phone up the bank, right, and I get that, that sort of voicemail message and it says, like, we are experiencing very high call volumes at the moment, so please bear with us. Your waiting time is, like, you know, 45 minutes or something. And I'll be thinking, this is Monday morning, and that's a pre-recorded message. You must know that this is a busy time. So why don't you hire more staff, right? So there's this sort of yeah. arrogance on my part to go like, Monday morning, super busy time. If you haven't got enough staff, 
upscale what's what's the fucking yeah. problem yeah. so if i apply that same sort of arrogance and ignorance to to the situation with the nhs what happens what is the restriction there and you can be yeah. as blunt and brutal as you like in terms of upscaling like getting the staff that you need yeah so okay so we have just launched a campaign with exactly that in mind because long term we need to have a big staffing plan so long term they need to be training up more staff and they need to be trying to retain staff and support the staff so they don't leave retire early go abroad change profession or whatever that's a long-term thing but in the short term there are a few things you could do right now to bolster the workforce so that there's more bums on seats for want of a better analogy yeah this so we've put together this five-point plan and it's really basic stuff it's like if someone's working an extra shift out of hours, pay them more money because that will encourage them to do the extra shift. Um, the home office have a massive backlog of people administratively that they should be um, approving their paperwork. It's all taking too long. They need to fast track that and they need to stop charging doctors and other healthcare workers who've come in such high like visa fees and things like that, because that's just a barrier to getting staff working. Um they need to sort the pensions out. There's this total pensions disaster where senior doctors are not working as many extra shifts as they could because they get penalised with tax. And it's all these things that in the long term, we just need to have a sensible conversation about how many staff we have and train up more. Mm-hmm. But in the short term, the government just essentially need to throw money at the situation and try and get more staff working more hours. Um, to, to, the, the, to, yeah, though, sorry to... The, the, Sorry, yeah, yeah, go. No, I was just going to say, um, like, to, to what extent do you think this comes down to, like, unfortunate optics for a Tory government? Like, you want to go into cabinet meeting and say, you need to give us some more fucking money because this, like, <laughs> we're sinking over here. Um, and, and indeed, with, like, immigration, like, if, if you could get more doctors to come over from the US or for, from wherever, uh, would that be seen as a sort of, like, an immigration story? Uh, like we should be training our own more or, or you know, it, it, is there a level of that to it where there's just not much Tory appetite to help or? Yeah, but we have, it kind of depends who's in charge. And I mean, there's been so many cabinet changes over the last few years that like there hasn't really been a constant view on that, I wouldn't say. Mm. Some people I think are more, you know, some some of the Conservative politicians are more supportive of the idea of just in, inviting anyone in and, you know, bolstering the workforce. Others, um, there definitely has been this sense that, you know, we need to get rid of overseas workers and um, that's incredibly negative and it's hard to it's hard to really dissociate that from the general hostile environment towards immigrants because, quite frankly, even if you were just looking at this in economical terms, the, the NHS is really inefficient in some ways at the moment and if you got more staff in it would just help it so i cannot understand why they're making it so difficult for people to come in and offer their skills and experience even you know even if you didn't like the idea of having workers from other countries coming like as a temporary measure it would it would fix things um so there is that and then in terms of giving money um it's a really tricky one with giving the NHS money because it's been underfunded for a really long time um you know NHS campaigners such as myself think that that's because of a broader plan to privatize the NHS Mm. um and when a pot of funding is given to the NHS as well because quite a lot of it is wasted on management consultants or 
things that don't affect change, unless that budget is ring-fenced specifically to hire staff or support staff or give them a pay rise or whatever, it's difficult to know where that money goes because it's it's not it's quite opaque at the moment. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, because yeah, I suppose that's the perception for a lot of people is that it's it is this like bottomless pit that we just continue to funnel billions into, and and the pushback that you always get on on panels and uh, uh, various opinion pages is that the NHS is always being like the funding is always being increased and it's always at crisis point every winter and i don't know enough about the you know the intricacies of it um so it's, i don't know it's really interesting to hear your your take on that there's a huge funding gap at the moment and it is it's complicated basically um healthcare since the nhs has existed has changed enormously you know the nhs is 75 years old so 75 years ago we didn't have very much in the way of effective treatments in lots of areas. There have been so many developments. So the fact that NHS healthcare costs go up every year, no one should be surprised about that. We have a completely different way of treating people. Um, the government actually, in terms of you know percentage increase each year, squeezed that so much during the 2010s. If you look at a graph of kind of NHS increases in, in investment, it's like it goes is going up and up and up, like step, step, steps, and then it gets to the 20, 2010s, it like goes off a cliff. And then during COVID, huge amount of investment was made, but it some of it going into projects which didn't really bear much in the way of um improvement for the NHS, like the test and trace and mm. that sort of stuff. So at the moment, um it looks like loads has been invested into the NHS, and there's certainly this plan that they you know, the government are investing more for the next couple of years and yet a lot of that is now being swallowed up by inflation and energy costs and a pay rise to staff although the pay rise is tiny and it seems weird that they haven't planned that into the budget in the first place yeah um, so yeah the funding is the funding is going to go up and that needs to, but also sorry just my final thing they haven't done a lot of the really basic maintenance on NHS buildings for the last few years. So the, at the moment in England, there's a nine billion pound backlog just on basic repairs. Like, yeah. like oh, there's water coming in through the roof, you know, really basic stuff that they haven't bothered fixing. Um, which, which is just bizarre, isn't it? It's like it's I, I talk about sort of short termism and, and long term mentalities a lot in, in TikToks and stuff, but like it. It never ceases to amaze me this idea that oh well look we could we could cut the budget for this uh, yeah just don't bother maintaining the bill yeah it's fine if it's a bit leaky like like you might save some money that day or that week or that year but it's gonna come back to bite you in the ass and then you have to fucking like, build a whole new building or something you know yeah 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 and some of these repairs you know that they get graded on kind of how dangerous is this you know this situation and quite a few of them it's like poses a you know a moderate risk to patients and stuff it's like why on earth is that happening in hospital <laughs> it just seems ludicrous um but it, it's all just such big sums of money now you're right because a lot of this stuff hasn't been tackled now for years it just gets big you know the longer you leave it gets more and more costly to sort it out i always imagine that there's like the decision makers at the in the upper echelons of the conservative party uh that they know that these things need fixing but they also know they've been around long enough that they know that they're not going to be in government forever. So they're like, oh, just let a Labour government fix it. You know what I mean? Like, kick it down the road. Yeah. We don't have to deal with it. 
Yeah, but I mean, they've been in power so long now. Like, uh, haven't they? Yeah. I mean, it's either that. Either it's a sort of laissez faire, like, yeah, let Labour fix it um, attitude, or, and actually, this brings me on to another question I was going to ask you, um, or they are just outright sociopaths. Uh, they just don't care. Like, oh, if the building falls down, it kills a few hundred patients. Fine, you know, it's a few less GP appointments. It's a few, you know, like, could they be that callous? Do you think? Okay, so the like the labelling with psychiatric um, like terminology or diagnoses or something, I I struggle with that because um, because these people haven't been assessed by any of the people giving them those names. Right. So I. I don't like it when, you know, words like sociopath or psychopath get used because um, that's actually a clinical diagnosis for someone who has got a mental health problem. But in terms of callous thinking, um, I have had so many times in the last few years, I think we probably all have, that you sit there looking at the, at the actions that are being taken and these people are not stupid and they're also not ignorant because they're being informed of the risks that these decisions, you know, the, the risks inherent in the decisions they're taking and the decisions are taken anyway and they're done brazenly. And, and most of the people make those decisions also are sort of unaccountable to it. Like if, if it all goes wrong, they sort of just walk away. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, during the pandemic, that was really difficult to tolerate because in real time, you could see decisions being made that weren't keeping people safe. And that's just unbelievable to witness that happening and for a person to not feel an unbelievable sense of guilt towards the population. I, I found that really difficult. These these are sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm not the psychiatrist between us, but these are traits of someone who has that condition right so like a shamelessness uh lack of guilt lack of empathy risk-taking sure i mean i just don't i don't want to diagnose any politicians with anything but i think something that can happen is that group mentality can be really toxic Mm. and sometimes i think a group of politicians have lots of power and they can block out the voices they don't want to hear and this kind of really awful groupthink can occur where, you know, people sort of reassure each other that something is the right course of action. And then it's almost like because the decision has been agreed on and you've all backed each other up, you then can't back out because you've invested this sort of, you know, you've you've decided, you've invested in a decision, that's it. Mm. Um, I think it's also uh, because... A- I'm perhaps generalizing here a little bit, but I get the feeling that because so many of them, particularly in the Conservative Party, are sort of privately educated, maybe like boarding school kind of upbringings, that there is this feeling of like institutions instead of family. And so the party becomes everything. Do you know what I mean? Like like mm. there this camaraderie between them they all went to eaton together or oxbridge or harrow or wherever the case may be um and so for them in their work life their family life which members club they go to it everything comes down to backing your mate up who used to wear the school same school blazer as you so when you get into a bit of a pickle and someone says well 
should we uh should we just send the ppe up north and and we'll just let the people down south not have any like when somebody makes a, a problematic decision like that you're part of this institution and it would be a little bit like like it might feel a little bit like you were going against your actual family maybe do you think do you, do you think that westminster itself is acts as an institution in that regard i think so yeah i think i mean people talk a lot about the westminster bubble um mm -hmm. i think when like if you watch old interviews with david cameron after he'd left uh number 10 he was asked I think he he was asked directly if he regretted announcing the referendum as part of the manifesto. And he even said, he was like, no, I did the right thing for my party. Like, it wasn't the right thing for the country. It wasn't the right thing for the British people. It was the right thing for his party. And mm. I remember like being like, wow, that's a really, like, actually quite interesting answer and really troubling, I think, for, for anyone that exists in the real world to mm. willingly throw political uncertainty out into the, like i mean it's it's taking a tory psychodrama and letting it bleed out into society and breaking up like this but there's like brothers that no longer speak to each other because one's a brexiter and one's a remainer and um you know and now just to, to a greater or lesser extent we are where we are economically because of that decision that he made back in 2015 was it 2015 election yeah, yeah. and the same sort of thing post i say post pandemic we're not really post pandemic but um you know with hancock and others talking about their actions and sort of patting each other on the back about how they'd protected the nhs and haven't they all done a great job and it's unbelievable to listen to because you you know we all lived through it we all knew what happened and how terribly they managed the whole situation mm. and as a human <laughs> It's just difficult to imagine standing up and saying that publicly, you know, because you would think that if you had been in that position, even if you'd managed it terribly and it had all been unprecedented and you hadn't expected any of it and you weren't well prepared, blah, 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 you would hope that even if it was managed terribly, someone could just stand up and say, like, we're really sorry. Like, we tried and we didn't do a very good job and, and we were going to learn from this. Yeah. And that's, I mean... It's weird, isn't it? Because when I went to school, that's what you were taught to say. You weren't taught to stand there and yeah, just brazen it out. Yeah, you're right, and it's 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 an interesting thing to to touch on as well because I I've discussed this before with my my girlfriend when I've been sort of wearing my uh, my faux psychiatrist cap, I guess uh, my arm armchair psychologist or something. Um, and I've sort of said, you know, it always confuses me why people in these positions who seem to crave popularity and in some cases the, the limelight, people like Boris Johnson, I'd argue Matt, Matt Hancock, um, uh, not so much Liz Truss, but pe people who crave the limelight and popularity and yet they can never admit that they're wrong. And yet if you do hold your hands up and you say, guys, I really thought, I was onto a winner there and I'm really sorry, but I fucked up and that's on me. I'm really sorry. Like there's, there's a, there's a likability to, to being that person. If you can just be a bit humble and accept, uh, the, the, like the responsibility that comes with your mistake and that you're going to have to try to do better. Like people like that individual when they apologize and they acknowledge their shortcomings. So you would think in the interest of seeking likability that they would do that, but they don't.
Well, I wonder if it comes back to that Westminster bubble thing where any admission of a sort of chink of failure or a chink of not being sure about something allows people to attack you. And so maybe sort of systemically and culturally there, people just do not admit failures because you just become a target. I mean, it's really unhealthy. Mm. But it's also like... Like how can you? I mean, it's one thing to you know go, go to work and have your media training crew say like, "Don't give them a fucking inch," because if you if you acknowledge something, they they will never stop. They'll never let up, and it'll be the end of your career. Like I kind of get that, but isn't there like how could how could you go home to your kids after that and go, "Yeah, I had a good day," like that? They'd be like, "Dad, you fuck you you lied on TV, Dad. All of my friends are calling you a liar. Like how could you? I don't know if I could be that person, you know." Yeah, I know, but maybe it comes back to that party idea. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a political expert in terms of, you know, any of this stuff, but um, it, maybe there is that pressure from the party to sort of not let the side down and toe the party line. And, and and certainly this is sort of going off at a tangent slightly, but we were running a campaign at the beginning of the camp, uh, the beginning of COVID to, it was called Protect NHS Workers, and we were calling for safety measures to be put in place. And so sort of, we did manage to convinced them to do a couple of things but um a lot of conservative mps were receiving these emails from us we were meeting with big group of mps every single week bringing doctors from the front lines to tell them what was going on in various things it was quite important because a lot of mps weren't getting expert information like the government were so anyone who wasn't actually a government minister wasn't being given as good sort of intel about what was going on and we were like giving people this information so um, a lot of Conservative MPs just ignored every single one of the emails that were sent to them about all of these meetings, all of the constituents who emailed them. It, it was unbelievable, really, because it was like, why don't you at least want to hear? Like, why, do, why don't you at least want to know what's happening in hospitals? Mm. But it was like they just didn't, you know, they weren't going to go there. And I actually really admired the small group of Conservative MPs who did come along or would, like, call me up they didn't necessarily agree with the stuff I was pushable, but like at least we could have a conversation. Yeah. But it was authority. It was really bizarre. But that's the the big thing, isn't it, about this this new political period that we're in now, where it's not even about debate or an exchange of ideas. It's about tribalism and just yeah. binary, like you wear a blue tie and I wear a red tie, so fuck you. Like it's <laughs> just discourse through the toilet around the u-bend um i'm I'm super conscious of time uh dr patterson so uh i will just ask you uh, one last question let's let's try and leave it on a on a light note um we've touched on a few sort of uh uh i guess uh, slightly depressing topics tonight <laughs> uh in terms of where we're at with the nhs politically um we are turning a corner, though, poll-wise, at least, it looks like. And there is a possibility of a Labour government in the not-too-distant future. Um, do you have hope and faith for the future of Britain and, and the NHS? And Well, OK, so I'm going to qualify this by saying the organisation I run is sort of non-party political. However, on a personal level, I have been quite open about the fact that I think this particular Conservative government is not good and <laughs> and you know would like to get rid of them um the problem i think about the alternative at the moment which is the opposition which is labor is that 
you know, what I do is mostly focused on the NHS and it's quite heavily focused on the kind of the future of the NHS and privatisation. And worryingly, one of the pledges that Keir Starmer got elected into his leadership position with was he, he said that he would remove private outsourcing from the NHS if he was elected as prime minister. And he has recently got rid of that pledge and it's really concerning because we've been running a project recently mapping out the private outsourcing across the UK. It's heavily in England. There's hardly any in any of the other nations, mostly in England. And a study came out in the Lancet Journal recently. You got, I don't want to patronise anyone, but the Lancet is one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world. And this study has come out showing that as you increase the level of outsourced care to private companies you increase treatable mortality. So you're essentially, people are dying unnecessarily yeah. when, the private, you know, when you move NHS services into the private sector. And, and I'm sure that you can correct me on this, uh, but I'm of the mind that the reason that that happens is because as soon as you outsource it to somebody, let's say it's Virgin Healthcare, but there's a lot of other providers, I'm sure, um, they, they still have to run the same service and treat the same number of patients, but they've got to make a profit now as well. And so what they'll do is start to put cuts in or hire fewer people. And so fewer people get treated. And so then there's a heightened risk. Have I got that broadly right? So that's the, I guess that's what people think. So that there's um, a full analysis has not been done. I don't think we know for sure. I, I suspect it's a combination of reasons. That definitely is one of them. Um, because if you're trying to create a profit from a service, you're going to be looking for efficiency savings. And so you're going to be cutting stuff. But um, also, I suspect something that is a problem is that every time a, an NHS service changes hands and you have a change of contract, change of staff, all that logistical stuff, it introduces bureaucracy and a bit of chaos locally and a lot of resource goes into it. And it breaks down some of the staff patient relationships because all of that caring relationship, that really matters. So all of this is a little bit difficult to quantify, but I suspect that comes into it as well. Sure. Um, I think the privatisation argument until quite recently was seen purely in ideological terms. Like some people loved the NHS because it was publicly funded and publicly run and that's how they wanted it always to be because they were socialists. And then there were other people who were more sceptical of that because they kind of liked the market and thought that it would generate innovation to introduce market forces, etc. And that that would be good because then if, if services are in competition with each other, they're going to perform better. Um, but actually, in the NHS, I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, within healthcare, it's collaboration that creates innovation and it's shared information, shared IT, shared technology across the service that makes everyone get better. You don't need like one little service being amazing and better than the one in the next door town. That's, that actually doesn't benefit anybody. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so in terms of what I think going forward, I'm, I'm worried that Labour are going to continue this trajectory towards privatisation, which is horrendous because patients are going to suffer as a result. Yeah, I, I've I've heard a lot about Starmer and, and not just around healthcare, but other pledges also where he said the right thing to get the leadership. Now he's in a leadership role and slowly <laughs> winding these things back. And so there's a lot of feeling of, you know, can I trust this person? Uh, I sort of look at it, call it naive if you like, but I look at it like 
anything has to be better than having the Tories in with the last 12 years. And then if he doesn't perform in the way that we need him to in that role, uh, form lobby groups um, and, and put pressure on. And you're more likely to get your questions answered in a Labour government, even if it is somebody like Starmer who has this reputation for perhaps relaxing some of his pledges. I think you're more likely to get an answer to the questions with the Labour government than than you are with the Tories continuing. So it's sort of, I don't know, I, I'm kind of maybe yeah. I'm burying my head in the sand a bit. No, you're right. It is super uncomfortable even to have this conversation, really, isn't it? Because there are some other pledges that, you know, have been spoken about in the last couple of days at the Labour conference, which are really great. And, um, you know, my, my focus mainly is on health, but there's obviously in my personal life other things I'm really worried about, like sure. climate crisis and all kinds of, you know, and I think we, we've got to have a global view on it all. And, and I don't like this word very much, but maybe we need to be pragmatic yeah. and think, you know, we're voting uh, towards a like, it doesn't have to be perfect, right? We don't have to be voting for perfection. We have to be voting for like the next step towards yeah. what we yeah, and that's that's a nice uh, nice positive note to leave uh, leave <laughs> us on. It's like it's not it doesn't have to be perfect, but just just something something broadly resembling happiness is fine. Yeah. Um, cool. Well, thank you so much for for joining me tonight, Dr. Patterson. Uh, if you would like to follow uh, my guest, Dr. Julia Patterson, on Twitter, she's on at uh, ju Julia Grace. On Twitter, is there any other platforms that you want to promote? I suppose every doctor. Uh, has every doctor, yeah, every doctor UK. That's the organisation that I run. Cool, jump on there, guys, and uh, support if you are in a position to. Um, I'll be back next Wednesday with a solo show of the podcast. Uh, if you would like early access to the shows, uh, consider jumping on the Patreon, as ever. If you're not in a position to support the podcast, um, that's fine too. I totally understand that. It's a, a weird fucking time for everyone at the moment. All I would say is that if you are enjoying, say, two or three episodes, uh, maybe share me around like the cheap tart that I am. Uh, press the upwards arrow on uh on one of the episodes that you found uh i don't know enlightening or funny or whatever um and then pop it into whatsapp to a friend of yours or an enemy i don't care uh and just say <laughs> uh, every listen counts um and just say i've been listening to this guy he talks a bit about politics and uh i think you might like him uh, or hate him whatever um I will be back, as I say, next Wednesday. I'll be back next Friday with another guested show. Thank you once again to my guest tonight, Dr. Julia Patterson. We outie.